Welcome, Element, from whenever or wherever you are watching from. But if you are actually watching the live stream on Sunday morning with us, today we are going to be handing out Job Journey booklets for our Lent journey that's coming up. Uh, what that means for you is that if you come to Element between 11:30 and 1 p.m. today, you can bring a blanket, have a little family picnic, or even just swing by and grab a Job booklet before you head off to the Super Big Game Bowl thing that I can't say the name or I'm going to be sued, but you can grab a Job Journey booklet. Today at 1130, we'll be handing those out. Now, as I said, if you're not comfortable coming to that, you can swing by the office any day this week and pick up one of those booklets. If you're not comfortable with that, we have an Uber driver deliverer who will bring a Job Journey booklet to your house. Uh, if you would like a PDF version, we can do that as well. If you are not in our local area, we will mail one to you. Just again, let us know at connectourelement.org because we want to take this journey together, all of us moving forward in the same direction as God calls us and grows us in the ways that he does. Now, today in the middle of the message, again, I'm going to put up a slide. The slide's going to have a question on it. That question is going to give you an opportunity to pause the live stream and take care of your kids, get a cup of coffee, or even better, answer that question with those who are around you before we start the live stream again, and then you can go on with the rest of what we're talking about today. Now, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Open Uversion, click on More, and then Events. If you are in our local area, we will come up by GPS in that smart device. If you are out of our local area, just type in 93455, and we will come up, and you will get all the sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you are so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is Exodus chapter 3, verse 10. And it says this, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would take us and move us to be a people who understand the ways that you lead us and guide us and teach us that we would be a people who understand that you have more intense growth for us than we could ever imagine. And the way that growth comes about many times is ways that we can't comprehend when we're in the middle of you teaching us. So teach us today to trust you and listen to the words that you say, that you would be glorified in our lives by all that we see that you do and have done. Amen. All right, so we are in this series called The Greatest Story Ever Retold. This is week five of that. Again, next week we're starting that Job journey. And the reason we're calling it The Greatest Story Ever Retold is that we're looking at things in the scriptures from maybe a little bit of a different angle than we have before. We're not trying to retell the gospel in any other way than the gospel is, but sometimes there's stories and narratives that we can look at from a little bit different perspective that gives us a wider idea of what's actually taking place. Now, now, I have this folder in my computer called The Can, and I take a, like sermon notes and books I'm reading and articles I read, and I throw all these things in there. I was once told that if something affects me in a, in a deep, profound way, those are things that I should always hold on to share with all of you. And so I keep these things, but that folder just gets really, really big, and so this is the way for me to whittle it down. I now get to preach a lot of these things to you of different things that I've read and listened to, and this is my brain without drugs. So you're welcome. Uh, these stories, again, are things that we may have heard, and we're just looking at it a little different way. And you might have heard some of these things before, but hey, review is good, so there you go. The first four weeks of this series went a place that I wasn't really even thinking it was going to go, but it did. 
said about community and belonging and coming together. And today can relate to that in a little bit, but really today the bigger idea is about trusting God when we don't really understand all that he is doing. You know, we could say, uh, hashtag uh, year two of COVID. You know, what is God still doing? What is still God doing in the midst of all this? Well, he's doing something. Sometimes we just don't see it. And too often, we want God to explain everything that he's doing in minute detail, so we'll be okay with it. But God doesn't need to explain himself. God is God. We simply need to trust that he is leading us and that he is good. God is always always been faithful. And so often we don't see that till the backside of something that we have been through as we look back and go, oh, God was there every step of the way. All those times that I felt abandoned, God was actually there walking with me. And I have found this true in my life over and over. And I realized that if I would just trust God on the front end, I would probably get into what he wants to teach me so much more faster than fighting him all the time. Again, I don't always, you know, jump into the things he wants me to right away, but I would really, really love to. And today what we're going to do is I'm going to retell the story just a little bit of the Exodus narrative. Uh, look at it from a little different perspective. Now, the story of the Exodus is found in this book called Exodus, kind of fun how that works. Uh, You could open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And this is a story about how God comes and rescues his children from slavery, his people called Israel, and brings them out to hope and life again. The beginning of Exodus, it starts in a place that's really the beginning of Jewish history in their national memory. As a matter of fact, even the book of Genesis that comes before Exodus, that is written during the Exodus. And if you understand the Exodus better, you will understand Genesis better. Now, Genesis, what you see is where humankind's rebellion against God causes man to run and break relationship with God. We break relationship with one another, and so we ruin our relationship with God. And it's funny because, you know, ruin is run with an I in the middle of it, which is I. I get in the way, and I I ruin things all the time. But even though we ruin and run from God, God promises that he will come and rescue and restore, that he will send a redeemer to bring us back into relationship with him again. Ultimately, Jesus comes and that's the gospel. And this is really the first week of this series. This is what we talked about. God bringing us back into family, belonging, reconciling. God bringing us back to himself. And at the end of the book of Genesis, all these things happen, but you have these people called the Israelites. There's about 72 of them, and there is a great famine in the land. When I say great, I don't mean as in wonderful. I mean great as in like huge, like really big famine. And they're going to starve because it goes all the way up to where the Israelites were living. And in the end, what they do is they will get an allotment of land in Egypt to be taken care of. Now, this allotment of land comes about because there is a man named Joseph who was an Israelite. And Joseph was greatly sinned against, and God took all of these sins and he moved them for good. And moved Joseph to a place where he could save not only a lot of Egyptians, but also his own people. Now, when you get to the book of Exodus, that is 400 years after the time of Joseph. In Exodus, what you will see is this thing called sin that started in Genesis as we sinned against God. It has now grown further and farther than anybody could have ever imagined. Again, sin starts when we run away from God in that relationship with him. And now the Israelites as a people are being oppressed by a whole system of sin called slavery. Now, the Israelites, you'll see throughout the books, they have sinned against others, and now they are being sinned against. But the writer of Exodus wants you to see that it is not anymore just 
one-on-one. This is a system of slavery perpetrated against these people. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 starts like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And it'll, it's like a phone book. It lists a bunch of names. We're going to skip that. Go to verse 6. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. How greatly? Well, they went from 72 to a couple million people. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king, which as you can read as a new kingdom over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, people have asked this question. They, they say, well, if Joseph was so important, how could they have forgotten who he is? Well, I think it's kind of indicative of what is going on in our, our country today. You know, our country is, is founded, you know, 250 years ago or so. And yet we are now destroying all the memorials of the people who founded our country. We are going to forget our own history. And we have been around a lot less time than the Israelites in Egypt. So you have to understand, it is something that happens and can happen. So this king comes up. He doesn't know who Joseph is or all the things that Joseph did. What does this king do? Says verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Like, so what are we going to do about all these people in our land? Verse 11, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The NIV translates it like this. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. What they did is they took all of these people and used them as their slaves to make their own comfort better, to make themselves wealthier. And again, what you see as Exodus opens is a group of people, the Hebrews, enslaved to this entire system of sin that is anti-kingdom of God. It is against the kingdom of God. God does not call anybody into slavery. Again, this is not one person against another. It's a whole system against a people. In Egypt, what happens there is what happens when sin builds itself and it gets moving forward. It overtakes really everything. And though the Egyptians do this, this isn't just something about the Egyptians. We all end up in these places when sin runs rampant, not just in our lives, but in our culture. These Israelites are a people who probably do not even know much about the God who is coming to rescue and save them because they have been in this place for 400 years. They started out as 72 people. They probably didn't know all these stories of what God was doing. And so God is going to come and reveal himself again to these people and instruct them and show them how good he is. And many people see the central idea of these slaves crying out as a central part for who the Jewish people became. And ultimately, we see it as a picture of our own redemption and salvation. Now, shelve your Bible open, flip over to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. This is what God then does. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now there's more to that verse we're going to look at in just a moment, but just God hears, he's coming. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, that's a guy named Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Again, this is the, the key phrases in these scriptures of who God is and what he is doing. I have heard the cry. That's what God says. Central to understanding who God is and how he acts in the world is that God hears the cry of the oppressed. And not only hears it, God says, I'm going to do something about their oppression. 
Now, we are a people today whose personal and corporate sins, just like happens here, starts to get out of control. It affects all of our lives. It brings shame into our lives. It destroys relationships with God, relationships with one another. And today, we cannot even function in the world in a way that we don't see everything without a sin lens that covers it. Everything that comes into our lives, we look through the little lens of what has happened to us in our lives. And so Egypt becomes this metaphor that Scripture came to use symbolizing what was against the kingdom of God uh, because of Israel's harsh treatment in that place, Uh, how they were enslaved to sin, how we ourselves were slaves to sin. They could not get away on their own. We could never get away on our own. And so they had to be redeemed and rescued and brought out just like we needed to be redeemed and rescued and brought out. And this is what God says in Exodus 3, verse 8, that I kind of skipped over. It's not this, that he's going to rescue them. There's more to it. He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and, so there's more, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the idea that God is not just rescuing and redeeming, but God is moving us to a new land, a new place that is better than we could ever imagine. It's better than we could ever hope. And so what I want to do in retelling this story, I want to help us to see a little bit more of all the ideas that are kind of shoved into this narrative that we might miss just a little bit. I mean, the first, obviously, looking at this narrative is that there's an all-powerful creator who sees our misery and pain. He is personal. He loves us. He wants to come and rescue and redeem us. And he hears our cry for help. He is concerned about us. He's concerned about our lost state. And what he does for these people, he's going to use a guy named Moses, a deliverer, that will come and lead them out, take them through through the desert into a place called the promised land. And this is why we look at this as what salvation represents. God comes and he sets them free, like he sets us free from our bondage to sin. He then takes them eventually to a new life in a promised land. That is salvation in him. And when God leads them out, it sounds so simple, but it's not. Now, most people, they don't really travel the world a whole lot, and so they're really comfortable in their own city or county or state or even say the United States. But when God takes these people out of Egypt, they're going to cross multiple different areas that are run by different people. But when they leave Egypt, going to this place called the Promised Land, it should be a relatively short trip across the Sinai Peninsula, because that's what they had to cross to get to the Promised Land. So I'm going to show you a map right here. And on this map, what you'll see is that here's the route. This is a normal route that people would follow in that day to go from where they were in Egypt up into this place that God was calling the Promised Land. If it was just you walking, that could probably take, I don't know, a week to 10 days, something like that. But the Israelites, they had elderly and children and animals and all kinds of stuff. So it's probably going to take them two to three weeks to make this journey. That's the direct route. It's called the Via Maris or the Way of the Sea. It's well-traveled in the ancient world. Everybody knew that route. But God does not take them by that route that everybody would expect. Flip over to Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus 13, you're going to see what God is going to do with these people, and it's very interesting in this. Exodus 13, starting in verse 17, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And again, a lot of people miss that. It's near. It's the easy way. It's the, it's the short way. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. What would happen with 
2 million or so people going through the Philistines' lands is they'd most likely be attacked. And God knows the Israelites' weaknesses at this point. And he knows that they would want to run back to Egypt. Verse 18, but God led the people around by the way. And that's funny in Hebrew because you can actually translate that as the roundabout way. And we know nobody does well in roundabouts. So, you know, the round by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. So here's another map. Now, this is the route that God actually took them on. And it's very circuitous and goes all over the place. And it took them a very long time to get there. Now, can you ever imagine God doing something that doesn't make sense to you? I hope so, because that's what God does almost all of our lives. God, for these people, has done miracle after miracle after miracle, a whole bunch with these plagues in Egypt. They have seen the supernatural invade the natural where they are. And even after they leave Egypt, there is now a cloud uh, during the day and a pillar of fire at night, which is really probably that same pillar of fire during the day, just you couldn't see the fire, so it looked like a cloud, but that leads them where they are supposed to go. God has invaded this place with them, and God says, I'm going to lead and guide you. That's better than Waze or Google Maps, because God made it all. God knows where he's going. And so what happens, though, is the pillar actually does start to move. Okay, we're going to the promised land. God's leading us. Milk and honey sounds great, but it goes the wrong direction. It's like, where in the world does he think he's going? We're supposed to go that way. The promised land is northeast. Why is the pillar going south? It's like if God showed up and he said, I'm going to lead you to Bakersfield. You say, I don't know why Bakersfield, but okay, let's go to Bakersfield. And then God goes south. And you're like, but 166 is right there. That's the fast way. God, follow me. Or he says, I'm going to take you to Santa Barbara. Okay, there's the 101. But God goes north. And you're like, what? I I don't understand what's going on here. God is going to lead his people in ways that they don't expect and don't understand. And a lot of the books in the Old Testament come to this question is, will people follow God when they don't understand what God is doing? Will they be faithful to him and persist like God has always been faithful to us? And what you will see during this journey is the Israelites, they will complain and complain and complain. It's like taking a long drive with a family in a car with a bunch of little kids. Like me, if I go somewhere and I'm alone, I don't stop for anything, anything. Don't ask questions about that. Now, uh, when you go with little kids somewhere, they're always like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? One writer said this, that Christians throughout history are like a bunch of children who suffer from destination impatience. Because we're always wondering, God, you promised blessing, and this was what I think blessing is. Why don't I, why don't I have that yet? I mean, parents, when little kids go, are we there yet? Apparently, if you're a rookie parent, you'll say, almost, right around the corner, we're almost there. It's going to be great. Never do that. Never do that. You know, everybody who has any, like, parenting experience after a while is going to say, are we there yet? You know what? It's a long way away, and the more you ask, the slower I'm going to go. So let's just stop asking this question. But we're like that with God the whole time. God, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Where are you going? Where are you taking me to? It's kind of almost part of our human condition. And it's part of our spiritual life of people and how God leads us. Because we want to get to the end. But God wants to take us on a journey to teach us and to grow us into who we are meant to be. And at the beginning of this journey with these Israelites, they're beginning again to build a relationship with the God who made them. They're entering his salvation and his rescue. But it all starts in a place of trusting that God knows what he is doing. So here's my question for you today. I'm going to throw up on a slide. 
I got two in this, actually. The first one is this. When have you felt that God was taking you the wrong way? When have you felt that? And secondly, where do you find it hard to trust God's decisions? When do you kind of rebel against God's decisions when he calls you to live or walk a certain way? When have you said, God, no, no, that's not right. We need to do this. When have we done that in our lives? Now, this feeling of God going the wrong way has the Israelites questions God's goodness at every turn he makes. And finally, there's going to come a point where, this is why we call it the Exodus, is that they will end up stuck in this desert for 40 years. Uh, God, probably a little irritated, gives them a time out. But what you have to understand is that this is also an expression of grace. Because God just doesn't say, fine, stay in the desert, I'm done with you. God still comes and provides every day. God leads every day. God guides them every day to grow them. Now, today we have these diets. It's called like the Whole 30. Well, really, if you look throughout the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, there's this thing called the Whole 40. 40 comes up over and over again. Isaac and Esau, ancestors to the Israelites, both got married when they were 40 years of age. 40 days marked the time of the rains in Noah's flood. 40 years was how long Moses lived in Egypt before he went out into the Midian desert. 40 years is the amount of time that Moses lived in the Midian desert before he came back to be Israel's deliverer. 40 years was the amount of time after he leads the Israelites out before he dies. 40 days marked the time that Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. 40 years marks the reign of King David. 40 years marks the reign of King Saul. Solomon. After Jesus comes, he is baptized and he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. 40 days is the period of time after Jesus rises from the dead before he ascends back into heaven before Pentecost comes. 40 is a way to refer to a significant period of time. Uh, 40 is the new 29. The older you get, the more you'll appreciate that, by the way. Sometimes people, and even churches, don't want to face the reality that God does not always take us on the direct, easy route. God takes us on a circuitous journey that goes into all kinds of places where we end up in a place like the desert in the Great Redeeming Exodus. This could be for you. Maybe you have a child that you love dearly, and that child has run from the faith, wants nothing to do with God, and you never know if they're going to come back. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're facing financial ruin, and you've been praying, and God hasn't answered your prayers yet. Maybe you got a horrendous doctor's diagnosis where your whole world is changed. See, when these things happen, it does not mean that God has forgotten about us, that God doesn't love us in any way. It does not mean that we've been abandoned. So many writers talk about this idea of the desert in our lives. One of them said, God's way is rarely the quickest, rarely the easiest, but the only alternative to it is the way of despair, the way of death. Because no one knows what the future holds except God alone. And multiple times we will experience the desert in our lives where we feel like all of our dreams have died. But God's love for us has been constant. And it has never stopped and it has never ceased. And so what I want to do is give you four things in retelling the story a little bit of the long way around. I think it's good for us to remember about the desert places that God takes us. Number one is this. The desert is the place where we learn patience. And that is so important because so many of us say, oh, I want patience. Oh, God, teach me patience. But no one wants to go through the hard times and pain in order to learn patience. Every day the Israelites would wake up and there would be this pillar and they would have to ask, am I going to follow? If the pillar moves, will I follow the pillar? If the pillar stays still, am I going to stay still and sit here? That's the question. Are we there yet? Like I read this story of a guy who went out on a blind date 
And it was, uh, it's like 3 p.m. in the afternoon at a coffee shop. So he goes, he shows up, she doesn't. About a month later, he gets a text message and it says, oh, sorry I missed our date, I overslept. Like, that, that's, the, that's the joke, because she's thought that he would still be there waiting. Are you there yet? Is she there yet? You know, for some of us, uh, this whole idea of are we there yet, I know this is very hard for you, because for some people, this is, this is singleness. And marriage looks like it's that thing that's the promised land that you just want to get to. And you have all these hopes and these dreams, they not come through. And the hardest question is in the midst of all of this is will you trust God in the midst of where you are? Or will you run off and try and get that thing that you think that you want? And I know that's not an easy question for me just to throw out there on a live stream like this because I have seen your pain. I've seen the stuff that you guys go through, the way you anguish over some of these things. But the question still needs to be asked. Will you be obedient to God in your life? Now, maybe it's the opposite side. Maybe you got married and you thought it was going to fulfill all your dreams and it didn't at all. And it's much harder than you can ever imagine. There is fighting. You don't feel fulfilled. You don't want to serve the other person until you feel like they've served you enough first. And you had all these hopes and these dreams that haven't come true. Will, will you be obedient and trust God in these places that are hard? Will you love your spouse when it's not easier, when they go through something very difficult? Will we love one another? Because the desert is the place where we learn patience. Secondly, the desert is often the place where God grows and strengthens us where God grows and strengthens us. The Apostle Paul, he writes much of the New Testament. He would lay his hands on people and heal people, and yet he has an affliction himself that God said he would not cure in order to make Paul stronger. He actually seemed to make Paul weaker in order to make him stronger. Paul asked God to heal him, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. But he, this is Paul writing, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. So what's Paul's response? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And that's kind of the paradox of the Christian faith and living and trusting God is that we are a people who want to be strong, but we will only be strong by understanding our weakness and laying that all at the feet of Christ. God knew what would happen if he took his people the short route, right past the land of the Philistines. They'd get scared. Now, God is perfectly capable of saving them in a number of ways by, you know, from all those Philistines that God showed in multiple ways when Israel was a nation, but they didn't know that yet. They didn't understand that yet. So God leads them through the desert place. So slowly, day by day, year by year, they would develop these qualities of courage and faith that were not present in them yet. One commentator says it like this, God is not nearly as concerned with where his people are going as who they will be when they get there. Because for 400 years now, they have been slaves. And when that is your identity for so long, you don't just one day wake up, boom, and it's gone. You've got to deal with that. And really, this journey reflects a lot of our Christian lives. Oftentimes, when somebody first becomes a Christian, they have a lot of zeal, and they're very excited. They want to read their Bible and sing songs and talk about Jesus all, all the time. But then over time, what was once easy seems to get a little bit harder. And I think that's because God is growing us past the phases of milk and into places of solid food. And so you read the scriptures and it becomes a little bit harder and praying doesn't feel like, like it used to. And the worst of all, there are temptations around you that seem to look really good. And I think many times if God just dumped us in the middle of the promised land, we wouldn't have this growth that we need to live our lives in true faith and trust in Him. 
Like we need to be a people who trust that God knows what he is doing every day. So God typically will lead us into harder desert-like places. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. It's about an older demon training a younger demon in the ways of demoning. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you say it, but whatever. Uh, and as he's talking to this younger demon, he's explaining people and how they grow and what God does in people. And this is what this demon says to the other demon. He says, God leaves the creature, that's the human, to stand on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, which is low desert-like times, much more than during the peak periods that it is growing, the human is growing into the sort of creature that he, God, wants it to be. That it is during those hard times that we are growing into who God knows we need to be. Third thing is, the desert is where we will learn ultimately to deal with temptation and sin. Like you look at Jesus, you know, Jesus goes out into the desert, into the wilderness after he's baptized and he's tempted for 40 days in that wilderness to not go through all the stuff he was going to have to do to rescue and save us and just automatically get to the land of milk and honey. And what does Jesus say? He goes, no, no, there is a road that God calls me to walk and that's what I'm going to do. For us, when things are hard, where are we most tempted to run to for comfort and hope? Because many times it's not God himself. We run to all these other things. Like I have a friend, doesn't go to Element. It's not you. Don't worry, I'm not talking about you. But every time life gets hard, he falls back into the same particular sin and he hates this sin and it destroys him. But he's been doing this for 25 years. It makes him hide from his wife, from his children, from his friends, and mostly from God himself. He will stop praying. He will stop reading his Bible. He gets so self-focused that he will only listen to the lies that he tells himself about himself, and he won't listen to God at all, and all the lies are not good. Now, I try to talk to him during these times, and he says, yeah, I'll have lunch with you, or I'll go out, and I'll talk with you, but you're not allowed to pray for me. That's what he says. You're not allowed to pray for me. That's the desert. It is in those low, hard times, in those places, that we need to allow other people to speak the truth into our lives. We must listen to wise counsel and trust what God says over what we say. Like the desert, it may be hard, it may be difficult, but on the backside of it, we learn to trust God. And it can be that experience in our lives that teaches us to deal with our temptations and all those things like nothing else can. Which goes directly into my number four, which is my last one, is this. The desert is the place where we learn to love God just because he's God. That's what the desert ultimately will teach us. We learn to not love him for the milk and the honey, but simply because he's good. Uh, John Ortberg tells a story about when he had little kids and they would go to this place called the Spaghetti Factory and there was this game machine there that you would put money in with a claw and it would grab little things inside of it. Now, I remember this because I've seen these games growing up. You put 50 cents or a dollar in, you try and grab an expensive toy and bring it out. Toy Story did a thing about this and it grabs an alien. He's like, farewell, my friends, I go to a better place. And they drop him off. But, you know, almost nobody ever wins in these machines. It's terrible. But he said his child loved that machine. He put his couple quarters in that thing and he would actually pray to the machine, oh, please give me the toy I want. Oh, please give me the toy. And what he says in the end, he says, you know how many uh, toys my kid got out, of that, got out of that machine? He says, zero, none. Never got one single toy. And it made me think about these desert experiences because that's the story of the desert. It's like the times when we were praying and asking God, we try to manipulate him to move heaven and earth to give us what we think we want or what we think we need at a given time. Uh, A house, a job, a promotion, a relationship. We keep putting our dollar bills in metaphorically and the clock keeps missing. And eventually we have to ask, do we love God just for himself? 
Like, will we even love the life that he gives us? Even when it's hard, will we glorify him in it? Will we love those in the world around us that God has placed us in? Will we live the life he calls us to? Or do we only want what we perceive to be the good stuff? As I said earlier, the desert was not intended by God to be a place of punishment. It was intended to be a place where God could lead his people to show them who he is, where they could live like children with the father who loved them. And in the desert, it is really just God and them. And what you see is God provides and they get sick of what he provides. And God leads them and they get sick of how he leads them. And God provides more and they get sick of the things that he provides for them again. But God gives to them over and over and over. He would guard them and protect them every day and every night. It's about teaching them to trust him. And in the end, we now hopefully get to realize as you retell this a bit and look at it, that really this whole thing wasn't just about relocation or them being slaves or even the land of Israel. It was about all of us, what we all need in this world, to be set free from the sin in our lives that so bind us. And I don't know today, even for you, what is binding you wherever you are. But you have to understand that the beauty of the gospel, when we speak about what God did to rescue us, is that when God comes to earth in the form of Jesus, he did not take the shortest route. He didn't. We are told in Philippians chapter 2 that he comes and he, and he sets off his godhood and comes in the form of a servant and is obedient to the point of death on a cross. That Jesus comes and he washed feet and served others. He came like a slave. On Jesus' final walk, he goes through this circuitous route to get to the, the, the hill of the skull, the place where he's going to be crucified. And he walks this really crazy route, and we call it the Via Dolorosa, or the way of sorrows, the way of suffering. That's our God, the one who himself went the long way around, that circuitous route to teach us that we will only truly live lives with him through surrender and repentance. But Jesus also promises us that when we walk this road with him, the road of the cross and surrender and faith, we will surely one day know the triumph of the resurrection, the glory of hope, and life. There is a land that is promised to us, and that land is relationship with God himself, the restoration of all that we were meant to be. See, the gospel is the good news of how Jesus leads us, leads us out of our bondage to slavery, just like he did for the Israelites then. And God has promised us blessing and hope and life again. And I know sometimes the desert-like places, they are very hard to walk through but we are never walking those places alone, that God is with us every step of the journey. How do we know that? Because Jesus came. We know that because Jesus came. God says, I am not gonna leave you in your sin and your rebellion. There's no way you could restore relationship with me, so I am going to do it for you. I am going to pay the price of what it means to have your sin removed so you can be righteous in my sight again. This is one of the reasons every week Element talks about this thing called communion. It's meant to be a reminder of what Jesus did to rescue and save us. It's why we always encourage you to, to grab some wine or some grape juice and a, and a cracker or a piece of bread, and you break that cracker or bread like Christ's body was broken as a remembrance of what he did. And you drink the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed. Because our God came and he walked the hard road to rescue us where we are to lead us back to 
himself. And we are a people who now get to step into real redeeming relationship with him again. And we get to walk our lives with him day by day, no matter what kind of place we step into. You know, whether it's a desert or it's a land of milk and honey, we get to walk with him no matter where it is because God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He is our great God that loves us more than we could ever imagine. And we are called to walk this road with him, even when it seems like it's the roundabout way, the long way. Guys, and if today you need prayer, maybe you feel like you've been walking in the desert for a really, really long time, and you want someone to pray with you, uh, you can send a prayer request to prayer.element.org or connect.element.org. Uh, you can get a hold of one of us. We'll get a hold of you. We'll pray with you. We'll talk with you. Uh, maybe you're in a room with some other people right now watching this live stream, and you can maybe even ask them to pray with you. And this is one of the reasons that we talk about things we have all these weeks so far, is that God restores us to relationship with himself and then with other people so that we can come around one another and encourage one another, especially when we are in those uh, desert places. As, uh, at, at Element, we are a giving church, and we're meant to be generous because God has been so generous with us, so we give you that opportunity every single week. Uh, you can give on our website, you can give at Element, but we become a generous people because God has been so generous to us. And I would encourage you today to grab some of the notes that go along with today's message and ask one another those questions about the desert-like places, about sometimes when you feel like God has been leading you the wrong direction, when you surely know it has to be this way, and God's like, yeah, yeah, I made it, I know how to get there and the ways that we could come alongside one another, encourage each other to trust what God is doing in our lives as we you know, move forward in this great relationship with him as he teaches us day by day the goodness of who he is as our father, as we walk out this life in this world. And as we do that, it's, again, remember that it's not just about us and God. We are now called to be God's ambassadors to the world, but we get to explain this great father and what he has done to rescue us to all of those around us. So let's be God's people in this world. Speaking of his great grace that rescues and saves us as we remember and speak the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take us and have us understand that no matter where we are in our lives, whether it's the desert or the time between the deserts or we're walking through a really great place of, of milk and honey, God, that you are the one who walks with us in all those places that you are the one who many times takes us into harder situations so we'd learn to trust you more, that we would get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you, that we would understand the gospel so deeply that we would know that no matter where we've been and what we've done, that you are seeking us to bring us back to yourself. And I ask that we would understand that in a way that we would share that with those around us who may be going through hard desert-like places, especially as we enter a second year of COVID and all the isolation that that brings and all the fear that that brings, that we could be a people who speak of hope and life and grace. Because though the desert seems like it has no end, you are a God who can step exactly where we are in the midst of that desert and bring hope and comfort that you watch over us and you see us. And ultimately that means that we would glorify you and worship you as you are. So have us be your redeemed people, living redeemed lives because of what you have done. And God, though I always hesitate to say it, I thank you for also those desert-like places because those are the places where we love you just for you as you have first loved us. So teach us to love you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.